Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. That's what I'm talking about. One o'clock on the East Coast. That handsome man there is Danny Moses filling in aptly for Dan Nathan, who was flying back from Las Vegas. He was at something called like the Money Show. I'm not sure what that I'm is. I'm sure he's flying back with less money than he came less with. Less money than he started with. No doubt about it. By the way, we're going to be joined by FactSets, Sean Ryan. We're going to dig into bank earnings. And while we're at it, why don't we throw up today's rundown for this show? Because a lot is going on. Jamie Diamond of Central Banks. Oh, you're dead wrong. <laughs> Jamie is clearly a fan of Market Call. Danny trades the S&P E-mini real-time. And as the aforementioned Sean Ryan will be here to talk about bank earnings and recap the entire thing. Danny, how are you? I'm good, buddy. How are you? Just watching. I didn't know that Janet Jackson was touring Control. Japan. Control. Control. A little now, control over in the BOJ. For you on the tape fans, um, you will recall that approximately, Danny, five weeks or so ago, I don't have the exact date, maybe Jacob More. can put it in the notes, but we had a podcast entitled uh, Turning Japanese, and our concerns are certainly coming to fruition now. And let's put up this first headline, the old Bank of Japan having some issues there as dollar yen approaches 150. And we have thought for a while this could be problematic. So- Talk to me about the BOJ and why you think it matters. Well, there's a little more inflation there than expected. It's, it's staying high there. Nothing crazy there compared to what we have. Um, but remember, the yield curve control, which they expanded, they moved it like the price is right with the red thing that goes up and down, and you have to guess when to stop, from 25 to 50 basis points to kind of 50 to what they called 1%. They did that in late July. That's their 10-year yields, the JGBs, as we like to call them. And they had to come four times. Today was the fifth time they've entered the mm -hmm. market to intervene. We're now up to 0.855%, which I know, you know, relative to our 10 years, is extremely low. But in their world, with as much debt as they have, if you want to feel better about yourself in the U.S. fiscal deficit and debt, go look at Japan for a second. So they're trying to keep that artificially suppressed. They spend another $3 billion equivalent to do it, and it hasn't really helped. It's still 0.855. That's where they came in earlier today. I think they have a, they have a BOG meeting next week. But guy, more importantly, kind of like our 5% 10-year yield, which we kind of bounced up to and then down, their 150 number on the yen they keep flirting with, and it's 149.80, 149, mm -hmm. it goes to 149.99, and it feels like when it goes through that 150, which would be weakening, that we're just going to zoom right through that, and then it, I don't know where it goes from there. It's going to weaken more from there. It's a big problem, guy. I agree with that. Their, their currency is clearly a problem. They're going to intervene to the extent that they can, but the problem is, I think... It's almost a foregone conclusion. You know, they're starting to try to sort of put Band-Aids on things. But this this patient needs far more than a Band-Aid. And as you have mentioned, by the way, that episode was on August 4th. So if you want to go to your favorite podcast store and go back and look, you can check it out. But, you know, this is a Japanese yen chart. This dictates the yen going lower. So the inverse of this is the dollar against the yen. That would submit the dollar going higher. 
But this weakness is something to keep in mind, and they will try to intervene. But as you've said, Danny, the Japanese are still, I think, the largest holder of U.S. Treasury. So the worse things get there, theoretically, the more selling of treasuries, theoretically, they need to do, which, again, means yields here go higher because the buyer of last resort is probably now a seller. And we can get into that as well. But, you know, we'll talk about yields in a second. But that's why, you know, you can say, I don't care about Japan. It doesn't affect me. I understand that. But as you have said so many times, everything now is interconnected. Yeah. And listen, if you import energy like they do in Japan, mm -hmm. obviously, as your currency weakens, that's going to hurt your fiscal deficit. I mean, you have to import that energy. So it hurts them. But also, to your point, they own $1.1 trillion worth of U.S. treasuries. Obviously, the Fed owns a lot more than that, but they're the largest holder. And yeah, they haven't been outright selling. It doesn't appear recently. They're down about $100 billion you know, in the last year or so, but they're also not buying anymore. So as a percentage of, of U.S. debt outstanding and what we keep issuing, they're not participating. So whether they how whether they own 10-year U.S. 10 years or T-bills, we don't really know the breakdown of that per se. So we'll see. But it has to come from somewhere. If they want to keep shoring up their currency and keep their yields artificially suppressed, it's got to come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a source more liquid than the U.S. Treasuries to do that. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, if you're looking, that's that's if you're going to that ATM, as it were. I mean, that's the place to go. And if it appears as though that's what's happening, so you know, we'll talk about Bill Ackman in a second and the bet that he made that wound up being right, and the fact that he took it off. And I understand the reasons why. We'll talk about this. I don't think, though, this is the end. But before we get to that, a little musical interlude for you, Danny, coming off the the first album of Van Halen, aptly named the eponymous Van Halen, 1978. Hit it, Jacob. Yes. Wow. Yes, he is crying. And that was obviously 45 years ago, if my math is correct. By the way, Van Halen, one of the top 10 bands of all time. I don't care what anybody says. I mean, they kicked ass. And can I just tell you something? Of course you can. When we were at Seawolf Capital with Porter Collins, Vincent Daniel, Vincent Daniel, and myself, that's exactly what we would do is just start playing a song that was the theme of the day. That's probably what we would have played. So I think great minds think alike there, guy. Well, it's interesting, you know, because I, we have talked about so many different things. And Jamie Dimon, I think he's in the Middle East, um, the Davos of the Desert, I think they call it. Fiscal spending is more than it's ever been in peacetime, and there's this omnipotent feeling that central banks and government can manage through all this stuff. He was talking to David Rubinstein, the founder of, of the Carlyle Group. I am cautious. This is Jamie Dimon. I am cautious what will happen next year. Here's what's interesting. I don't think it makes a piece of difference whether rates go up 25 basis points or more, he said. Whether the whole curve goes up 100 basis points, be prepared for it. I don't know if it's going to happen. The point is, and we have said this, the Fed's a sideshow now. The Fed could cut tomorrow. The Fed could hike tomorrow. It almost doesn't matter. What they have done is in the sauce, as they say, and you can't get it out. So speak to me about his comments, because quite frankly, he's been spot on and he's been cautious for quite some time. Let me just say that the majority of people, of experts, weren't complaining when rates were artificially mm -hmm. low for a long time. We just criticized Japan. We kept our yields low as well with quantitative easing. I think what he's saying is, and he's right, is that this is a normal cycle now. When the when the Fed doesn't have your back and they're not buying bonds, this is what happens in a naturally occurring way. The yields are going up. He sees what's happening in the credit book. He's And again, for him, it's nothing catastrophic. But what he knows is what the Fed is ignoring. 
that you can play with the short-term yields all you want and all this stuff going on. But if they're not paying attention to what the long end is really doing here to the economy, mm-hmm. then they're just oblivious. And he's right. They were late on getting inflation under control. I think they've gone a little bit too far because they want to see, quote, 2%. They're missing the forest through the trees. By the way, great episode last week with Luke Roman on, on the tape podcast. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, and what he's seeing is the natural cycle, which is now happening. So we're here now, and we haven't had to deal, and I know Sean's going to come on and talk about this stuff in the banks, with a natural cycle, and that's what he sees happening. And is it happening at this exact moment to a large degree? No, but it is happening. And so that is a slow process, and it's going to be a huge overhang, I think, on economic growth. And he wants the Fed to recognize it, and for some reason they've been hesitant to do so. so. Well, I think, well, uh, that's a longer conversation for maybe our podcast. Of course, the problem is, they probably do recognize it. I think they also understand that if they shift course or indicate such, that that inflation genie is going to bet right at. By the way, it's never been put back in the bottle, but I guess it's going to remain out of the bottle. Let's take a look at yields, because yesterday, as you mentioned, Danny, 10-year yields touched, I think they may have breached, not that it matters, 5% briefly. And then Bill Ackman at about 10.20-ish or maybe 10 a.m. Eastern time put out a quote that basically said he was out of his short bond position. In other words, he had made a bet that yields were going to go higher. I think that was in early August. I think 10-year yields, at, maybe before that, I think 10-year yields at the time were about 4.2%. Over the next couple of days, they actually traded lower yields, and then obviously they rocketed higher. Yesterday, he said he was out. And this is my take on it, Danny. I'm curious as to yours. I don't think he necessarily believes that's over in terms of yields going higher. But I think he's doing this calculus couple things can happen. If the market, the stock market were to start to go precipitously lower, you'd see a flight to quality in the form of the bond market, which by definition would make yields go lower. That's counter to his position. Or God forbid, something were to happen, an escalation of the geopolitics, that would create a flight to quality in the form of bonds as well, which would make yields go lower. So he's saying to himself, you know what? There are a few scenarios out there that are out of my control that will make this position go against me. I want to get out of it now, say check change and move on. But I would submit, Danny, I don't think it's over at all. I still think yields go higher. What are your thoughts? Good on him. You know, if he did put the trade on where he said and did take it off where he said, great. The problem here now, guy, is that I agree with all that, except for the fact that if you let your brain go and and you come to the conclusion that U.S. Treasuries are no longer the risk-free asset, Mm -hmm. you go down that wormhole. You, you can't get out of it. And so mm-hmm. if you want to believe it's still the risk-free asset, he's 100% right. And you certainly could get a knee-jerk reaction of yields moving a lot lower, God forbid, on things getting worse, you know, geopolitically or whatever it might be. But then here's the problem. It's still a supply and demand thing in my mind. And if the Fed keeps selling and they go on with this quantitative tightening and the Treasury keeps issuing paper and we have this debt, we have this, we have to fund this deficit, it's, it's only going to get worse. And so, yes, Cute trade, it could certainly come in, but to me, it's all about supply and demand, and I think it's going to resume its way higher. Yield. I agree with that. It is a supply, it is a supply and demand thing. There's more supply, there's less demand. By definition, the market, and I've said this, you have said it as well. The market is demanding a higher yield to buy our debt. It's just that simple. And the buyers of last resort, historically, the Chinese to a certain extent, the Bank of Japan to a certain extent, our Federal Reserve, they're just not there. So you have to ask yourself, who is going to step into that void? Now, there will be entities or institutions, whatever that will. But again, they're going to demand a higher rate of interest to buy it. And I think that's what we're seeing. And the last couple of bond auctions, 
have not been particularly good. You talked about it on our podcast last week. So can yields go lower in the short term? Well, we've seen that since May. You've seen moves lower in an uptrend. I think this uptrend continues. You know, maybe we pull back a little bit here in yields, but, you know, I, I wouldn't run too far from this short bond trade. I, I think yields will continue to go up, and we'll see. Let's take a look quickly at the CME FedWatch tool. Danny, you're very good at these things to sort of gauge what's going on. I don't think the market has a lot of conviction about another hike here, but you can sort of talk to me through this whole thing. Uh, that is Blutarski, 0.0 yes. uh, chance, basically. Um, I know there's still a chance greater than zero of a raise at the next meeting in December. I don't see any of that happening. Um, I think we're going to continue to see data come in that shows that the economy is slowing, that inflation, for the most part, is slowing. And I think the Fed is done. So I think these charts are becoming less and less important. What is important on these charts is when, I know we don't have that up, when you go out to May or June of next year, this higher for longer is still pervasive in those. And I think that is the real driver in the markets right now, not whether the Fed is done raising, but when they may start cutting. But again, I go back to what would make the Fed start cutting. Again, you don't want to go down that wormhole, right? So things have to get a lot worse in the equity markets, so forth, or yields have to move higher to cause the equity markets to sell off even more before we even get to that point, guy. That's, that, that is exactly right. And that's the question I think everybody needs to ask. Now, we last week asked you to join up for the CME Challenge and many of you did. Danny Moses, you did as well. I did. Dan Nathan did. I'm not doing particularly well. You're probably doing better than I. But we have real-time S&P mini chart here. Let's throw it up. And Danny, walk us through some of the things that you've been doing. Because I think people are fascinated by how – I know I am, just to get inside <laughs> that head of yours. Well, a, couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, remember, in the real world, not on a simulator I put on a – Real trade at around 4,500 with a stop at 4,600. Got as high as 4,550. I took half the short off around 4,400 and the rest probably just under 4,300. So I haven't really been involved until the trading game started. And when I got the notification on Sunday night, of course, you could probably figure out which which direction I chose, which was to short, I think around, let me look and see, around 4,260. I also did the Russell NASDAQ. I entered the Russell around... 16, I don't know, 95, and the NASDAQ at like 14,700, something in that range. Um, on Monday morning, uh, I covered them and let it sit for a little while and had zero position. I then re-entered around 4,230 just on the S&P. And I think mm -hmm. we, as we see here right now, I can't see that. It's near 4,250 in that range. I'm up overall in the positions cumulatively. Uh, you can see on the leaderboard, I'm up like $10,000 or something. And there's some people that are trading thousands of times. I've traded, I think, 10 times. Um, and in a five, six-day period, it's obviously hard to do. But I just feel like this week's not going to get much better. And unfortunately, I think things are going to get worse um, you know, around the world. And yes, there could be some good earnings that come through. But I just feel like there's much bigger macro issues at stake that are going to drive futures lower for the rest of the week. So Let's pull up our charts with lines so you can take a look at sort of the way our mind works. And you will see, you know, we've had this uptrend in place basically for the last year or so. You can see the points. We have concluded vis-a-vis -vis this chart that we have now broken this uptrend. We have also pointed out that the, we're right at the, I believe that's the 200-day moving average. And I've said for a while that 4190-ish level is going to be pretty critical support. As it turns out, I think the low we saw was 4189, and you've seen a subsequent bounce. But I got to tell you something. It doesn't trade particularly well. I think if we were to violate this support level, um, I don't want to say cascade, but since I don't have a better word, 
cascade lower, Danny. So that's how I look at this chart. Does that make sense to you? It does. It does. And again, there's stocks to own. But, you know, Mike Wilson pointed out in his note earlier this week that the late cycle sectors are starting to work, right? Like they should, right? So kind of some of the safer plays, you know, you know, in general that perform well in kind of a late cycle. But I think we all kind of agree whether we're in a recession or not is up for debate. And we may look back and decide that we were at some point in the future. But I think we all agree we're entering kind of a new normal as it as it relates to kind of the cycle that we're in from the economy's perspective so i made a comment last night on uh fast money that ralph macchio or macchio should have stopped making movies after the outsiders he went on to do that what was the name that karate kid or something which it's not a particularly good movie don't at me please i love that movie Uh, that's fine but i mentioned the outsiders because of course that stevie wonder song stay gold Danny, you stay gold, and let's just put up a gold chart here because I got to tell you something. We're not backing off here. We had a big run. Um, we've we sort of evened out now, but I think we're just finding our sea legs once again. Again, a lot has to do with I understand rates, but I will tell you, Danny, and you pointed this out, gold went higher in the face of 10-year yields going higher. That's not a relationship that typically happens, and it happened now. So if rates were to go lower theoretically that should become a tailwind but i don't even think it matters at this point so we're back around that support level in the form of the moving average i know what you think danny but walk us through sort of the gold thoughts yeah i've been a buyer on weakness that whole v that was created there we were saying each week or each day just to nibble by a little bit more i don't care if it stays flat for a long period of time i think it's great insurance to have in your portfolio i do believe and i know we're not going to really talk about bitcoin here but you, it's, it does lose thunder to Bitcoin to a degree. And for Bitcoin to make the move, again, from a market cap perspective, three, 400 billion versus the gold market, which is north of 10 trillion, I believe, guy, it's not that big. But it does take an opportunity away, I think, from people that otherwise could choose gold. So I would, I would point that out. Um, I'm a big believer in it. Again, we won't go through it on this call right now. But if you really want to go and learn about how it really works and why we think it's going to work. I go back to Luke Roman's interview we had last week again on On the Tape podcast. Please go back and listen because to me, guy, it's just math. There's X amount of gold that's out there and it can be used in various ways. And the fact that it's holding up, like you said, right now, and it was holding up as rates were moving higher over the last week, tells mm-hmm. me it's a much stronger hands. So let's bring him in. You know, Sean Ryan from FactSet does handles the bank side of things, one of Butter's colleagues that's a s apostrophe sean also knew that jamie's crying's off van halen's debut album in 1978 sean how are you great thanks thanks for having me back it's great having you back and you cover banks we're pretty much through that side of thing um you're talking about consumer activity slowing down so let's put up that slide maybe you can speak to this because so much of what's going in my opinion so much of what we're seeing with the banks is going to be predicated on what's going on with the consumer. So walk us through this. Well, you know, it, I'm a little bit surprised that it's taken this long to manifest itself. But, you know, you're, you're starting to see some, you know, fraying on, on the consumer side, particularly at the lower end. But cyclically, that's usually where it starts. Um, you know, we had the auto number. You're seeing that in credit cards, too, the, the low end, uh, you know, store cards versus general purpose. Um, you know, disproportionate rise in delinquencies and charge-offs, um, you know, the consumer and particularly that uh, segment of the consumers is just increasingly under pressure. It's fascinating to me, though, and you said it. I mean, maybe, listen, I thought these, <laughs> the Fed actions, I thought this would kick in a lot sooner. You know, I thought by midsummer we'd be feeling it. Here we are in October, and 
you know, that lag effect, that variable lags has not really kicked in. Does it surprise you or is it just a function of all the money that had been sloshing around pre all this stuff that is sort of working its way through? And that's what's sort of elongating. I don't want to say cycle because it's not really a cycle, long, elongating this period of time. That's my perception. I mean, it's we we have no good historical analog for 15 years of of free money, right? So, um, you know, very unusual cycle, and it's taken a lot longer for sort of uh, you know the Fed tightening to actually begin to to have the impact you would expect. But now you're seeing it, and you know, in autos, that's particularly ominous, right? I mean, if you think about that low end consumer, mm-hmm. you know, think about their kind of you know cascade of you know what bills they're going to pay if you're stretched right like you know getting evicted getting foreclosed on that takes time if you have to skip a payment you can do that if your credit card gets turned off you have other modes of payment if your car gets repoed you can't get back to work so that's really the the last thing you're going to let slide and you know you have a lot of weird effects you know coming out of covid and supply chain issues in the auto finance uh you know system that are kind of working themselves out but you know and now on top of all those pressures you know, for a lot of the marginal auto buyers, borrowers, the thing that the straw that's bringing the camels back now is auto insurance inflation. So it, it's just a, a lot of chickens coming home to roost at once now. Yeah, if you look at the securitization market too, where it kind of all begins where funding is, right? Where how these banks can issue these auto loans and so forth, it's more expensive. They have to raise rates. You're seeing banks pull out of auto lending, right? You're actually seeing that. You bring up right. a great point I was going to mention. It's auto insurance health insurance, but we're now at levels on subprime auto, I think 60 day delinquencies are 6.11%. That's highest since 1994, right? Where we went through a cycle. Um, And so here we are not in a recession, technically with employment very strong. And we're seeing this happening now. And, you know, the banks are pulling out. And so there's a, there's a a scarcity of loans that are available out there. And that's how people got into their cars, 0% financing. That's how people got into their boats, 0% Financing. So that stuff is changing as we speak. And that's a factor of a lot of things that, you know, like I said, banks with, you know, pulling out capital of the business and also the markets for securitizations just got more expensive. And that's all it is. So. Yeah, banks are really in a defensive crouch. I mean, they, you know, they kind of sentiment was so bad coming into earnings season that they managed to exceed reduced expectations, but they come out really in a defensive crouch and, and they ought to be right. I mean, you have credit that's deteriorating both on the consumer side and the commercial side, you know, most acutely in, in commercial real estate. You've got, you know, funding costs that continue to grind higher. And again, even though it wasn't as bad as people expected this quarter, everybody knows that's only going to get worse. And even if the Fed doesn't raise again, you're going to see those deposit mm-hmm. betas continue to catch up. Uh, you know, and then you have expenses, right? And, and you're starting to see banks take a, a more uh, proactive approach on expenses. You're starting to see some layoffs. But even there, you know, you've got a lot of pressures driving those things up. You've got a lot of rising compliance costs. If you talk to uh, cybersecurity firms, a lot of them are talking about how much business they're getting from the banks, right? And that's regulatory driven. The banks don't have a lot of discretion to cut that. And you know, if you're uh, late on your car payment, you're definitely late on credit card payment. I mean, right. so <laughs> for sure. And at 20%, as the great economist Elon Musk pointed out last week, that can bite. But yes, so I think it's all kind of coming together in that way. So, so I have a question for you. So let's take a look at the XLF and these certain things. So obviously, listen, they're having the have-nots in the banks. We get it. Um, the XLF, like probably like it should have. After Silicon Valley Bank, you saw the banks rally in unison pretty much. In the absence of bad news, those names got off the mat. But since, I don't know, middle of July, early August, we're starting to give it all back. That makes sense to me. But my question to you is, 
should JP Morgan trade at the distinct premium that it trades at vis-a-vis a Bank of America or a Wells Fargo or Citigroup in terms of price to book? I understand that it deserves a premium multiple, but what has to give? Do you think it's on the JP Morgan side giving a little back or does Bank of America and City catch up? I understand typically the answers to these questions are a little of both, but if you had to pick one, do people come to Bank of America and say, you know what, it's just too cheap on price to book? Or do people say JP Morgan's just too expensive in this environment? I I think it's more likely given the pressure on, you know, uh, price to book tracks, you know, return on equity, right? Like mm-hmm. they can't list like have basically reverse engineered PE and they ask like act like they've discovered cold fusion. But you know, but yeah, I mean, you've got that pressure on ROEs, you know they're going down. And so, you know, if that one would expect to pull down, you know, multiples. And 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 so if that's the case, it is perhaps more likely that, that you know, JP Morgan gets pulled into the orbit of, of the others. I mean, there's always, you know, if you think about the, that group, they're financial conglomerates, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. know, more than just plain vanilla banks. And, you know, with financial conglomerates, as with conglomerates more broadly, there's, there's often a couple of exceptions to the rule that seem to be hitting on all cylinders, even as, as the rest sort of act like textbook conglomerates with mediocre returns. And JP Morgan is that, um, you know, a couple cycles ago, Wells Fargo was that, and look at them now. I mean, AIG was that once. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think, you know, without taking anything away from Jamie Dimon, who, you know, I, I think has certainly earned his sort of, you know, status as, as the industry statesman, um, you know, they're really the outlier and, and, and everybody else is sort of closer to where one might expect them to be. One more question on on the hold to maturity front. You know, you see HTM, people talk about this. The Bank of America hold to maturity loss, unrealized loss, I think is $115 billion. Please correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's correct. It's up precipitously. But the market participants, the bulls will say, well, it doesn't matter because it's hold to maturity. And, you know, they're not going to lose that money. Okay. But there's an opportunity cost associated with that as well. And then sort of peripheral is you have to question a bank that didn't see this coming. The fact that they were buying treasuries at the exact wrong time suggests that maybe it's just mismanaged. And I don't, you don't need to go down that road, but just go down the sort of the hold to maturity road and the opportunity cost. Sure, sure. Uh, well, you know, it's one of those things that doesn't matter until it does. And, and, and we're at the point in the cycle where, you know, I mean, since the spring, right, nobody really cares whether you've you've called something available for sale or held to maturity, they they're going to look through that and 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 adjust your your book value, you know, for for the the actual economic loss. Um, yeah, and and it is you know a little bit remarkable that you know even after the spring, you're still having banks you know have these sort of outsized hits. I mean, granted, you know the the, the action in the bond market was was kind of outsized last quarter. The, the, the bear steepness continued into this quarter. So, you know, could, could still get, you know, much worse with the year end marks, but um, yeah, it, it, it's a little bit surprising. And um, you know, that's another reason why, you know, some of these banks, um, you know, trade at the multiples they do, you know, Harry Keefe, the, the analyst and namesake of, of Keefe, and Woods always used to say banks will always trade between hatred and apathy. <laughs> so I guess we're a little closer to hatred now. I, th- I think they're both sides of that equation right now. Um, we'd love for people to join your community so much so that we created a bit of a slide for it. And I'm going to put that up now because people should join the FactSet community and join our community of Insight readers. 
there you go. That's up. I think a lot of people already do. They obviously love Butters Works. I think a lot of them have got to know your work as well, Sean. We appreciate you coming on. I think, listen, say what you want. I know people will say banks are not that important anymore in terms of the weighting in the S&P. All right, I'll play that reindeer game. But banks are vitally important to what's going on in the economy. And I think there's a story out there that people are not sort of taking into consideration. So, Sean Ryan, thanks for joining Danny Moses and myself today. Thanks for having me on. It's fun having Sean, Danny. And listen, we're getting questions um, from some of our viewers. Donna asks, look at this fun little um, slide we've pulled up. Yesterday, Bill Ackman covered his shorts on the bonds, and immediately the market jumped for joy. You're right. Previously, he's also mentioned as a very large position in Google, which reports today. Any coincidence? Well, funny you should say that because I think we have a Google chart. I don't believe in coincidences, by the way, but let's throw up the Google chart. The implied move, 5%. Listen, Danny, I know you don't necessarily want to go down this rabbit hole, but Google out of all these seven to 10 names, I think it's the most compelling in terms of valuation coupled with balance sheet. Now, you could say maybe the ad model might be challenged if the economy is slowing. Absolutely. But this is a company, at least you can say, I understand what they're doing. It's been lower left to upper right for quite some time. So I know that Ackman's um, been enamored with Google for a while. I don't think necessarily him getting out of his bond position was predicated on Google earnings, Danny. I think it was more so he saw some of the risks out there to his position and he thought it was a good time to take it off. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't think those two are related. However, yields coming in, you know, has been a precursor for these tech stocks doing better just in general. That's what these quants are set up to do that. He's not a quant fund, but in general, if yields come in for the right reasons, you would expect tech stocks to do a little bit better. And, you know, the stock's not that expensive. Google, I haven't done the bottom up work going into the quarter to look at it. But to your point, I think people feel safe in owning a name like this. So. You know, it's interesting when we had talked to Sean, and I should have asked him, but, you know, what we've seen with Discovery Financial, Capital One, to a certain extent, American Express, you know, you're starting to see on the, not so much on the edges, it's right in front of your face, really, if you pay attention, loan loss provisions, they're clearly staving for a rainy day, for lack of a better term. And, you know, that typically is sort of the presage to something happening. Just thoughts on that before we get out of here. Yeah, we touched on it, I think, I think earlier on that. Banks are preparing. Some banks are better prepared than others for it, right? We've seen that. I think that's why people feel safe owning JP Morgan. They're pretty pretty well diversified um, in their business model. Names like Wells Fargo, Bank America are probably more levered to the U.S. consumer. I think they may be, you know, they may be reserved appropriately at the moment. <laughs> but certainly, again, we just talked about, you know, historically high rates or, or a curve that's not inverted are good for banks in general, right? Because they can borrow on the short end, lend out on the long end. That spread doesn't exist. At the same time, to your point, they're taking these mark-to-market hits on their portfolio. Loan growth is slowing and credit quality is getting worse. So everything's kind of slowing on them at the same time. And so these big banks are going to be fine. But it would not shock me if we see more M&A throughout 2024 on some of these small and middle-sized banks that won't be able to grow, that will have mounting losses. And again, maybe that's the opportunity for the big banks, unfortunately, to get bigger. So yes, credit only has one direction to go, Guy. And again, with employment, unemployment still where it is below 4%. This is just what a rate move is doing to the mm -hmm. credit cycle. Imagine what a real economy slowing would do to it. So We focused a lot on financials and credit today. It was great to have Sean with us. We could have talked about energy and some of the M&A in the space. We'll have Danny back to sort of break that down. I know Vinny and Porter have been talking about that for quite some time. But Danny, 
I appreciate you stepping in for Dan Nathan. It's always great getting your perspective. I want to thank Sean Ryan as well from FactSet. Check out Sean's work for sure. And by the way, those of you in the CME Challenge, take a screenshot of how you're doing. Send it to Amanda. She loves getting her inbox sort of flooded with all these different things. <laughs> Maybe we'll put it up on tomorrow's show. I want to thank everybody for joining. We'll see you tomorrow, folks. Yeah.